Okay. Dean, thanks a lot for coming. Um, you were just saying, um, we've been chatting a little bit before we went live, that you used to travel a lot, right? Um, uh-huh. You were just saying. Where have you been? Um, we've been chatting. Uh, Where have you traveled? Well, I mostly go to um, Germany or England or Canada or America. It's usually isolated to those because I'm normally collaborating with people who speak English. But the plan is to broaden it a little bit. Well, it was <laughs> the plan to broaden it a little bit with this uh, the project I'm working on now. But obviously that got kind of completely blitzed. So I should be probably in Switzerland now writing a book with this guy, Harold Appenspacher, who I've got a collaboration <laughs> going with. So we're supposed to be finishing that n- now, basically. But it's so not happening. No, no. <laughs> so we're having to write a book, sort of blasting draft back and forth. And Can you collaborate on a distance? What's the book about? Uh, the book is it's a little bit different than usual. It's, uh, it's on something called dual aspect monism. Please, elaborate. And, and the deep structure of meaning. <laughs> Oh, I like so this guy. Of... He's a very interesting fellow, actually. So he uh, he was a member of the Jung Institute in Zurich, and okay. he, he knows the Jung's ancestors and all of these kinds of things. And kind of sometimes deep teaches. structure of the deep structure of meaning. Of meaning, it's finding theories of physics that have a place for meaning, basically. So it's, so dual aspect monism is. So there's usually this idea that there are two kinds of thing in the world. There's minds and there are matter, right? Yes. And then this is supposed to generate this hard problem of consciousness, right? How, if you've got two things that are so very different, are they supposed to interact? Presumably if you want to, you know, change the properties of matter or move a piece of matter, you need something made of matter. So how is, how is mind and matter, how are they interacting? So that's one of the problems. The other problem is how is a piece of matter, which we think of as just, you know, this inan- inanimate stuff, how is it supposed to have something like this feeling that we get, the subjective feeling of being conscious? So dual aspect monism. And then there are, t- there are two positions. One says, well, they can't interact. That's too difficult. Um, so either you say that everything is material. Brains, really, they just do reduce down to solid material objects right they really are just material things they're just out brains basically having a mind is just having a brain like yeah I so that's material yeah. that's like the reductionist the standard scientific reductionist viewpoint right there's nothing special about them there's nothing ghostly or weird it's just matter okay and then the other position nobody really defends this other position anymore, <laughs> but that's um the idea that everything is mind in some sense oh so I've been mind, accused mind of uh, being spiritual rather than like scientific when I like was proposing something like that sounds resembles something like that. But you, anyway, well, you can say whether it's related to this other thing, which is the dual aspect monism. So, so this Id- so that other position where everything's mind is called idealism, and then the idea is that there's you don't necessarily have to choose one or the other. There's this position called dual aspect monism, which is associated with Spinoza. Okay. It was a bit mystical and all yes. that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so and what he said was, okay, so it looks like there's two things, mind and matter, but they're basically just ch- two aspects, two ways that this deeper underlying thing that's neither mind nor matter, that's psychophysically neutral, they're aspects of that. 
So the, the fundamental thing, the fundamental ontology, this is what philosophers say about what there is, ontology yeah. is the study of what there is. Yeah. That is neither mental nor material. It's spirit, God, basically, <laughs> or nature. And that's the fundamental stuff. And then minds and matters are less fundamental. It's almost like they're sort of illusions that come from decomposing this deeper thing into parts. And then our book is basically saying that um, in physics, you get, we can find like a bunch of these, a bunch of proposals by, you know, not by crackpots, by proper decent physicists, um, David Bohm and John Wheeler and Wolfgang Pauli, which seem to have something like that position in mind. And in each case, you have to, it's necessary to have the mind, the subject, and the matter, the object. Nothing makes sense unless you split the world, divide this, this one yeah. unity into a subject and an object so that you can reflect the object back to itself and so that the self can make sense of itself. So you need this split, but the split isn't fundamental. But without it, you don't get any such thing as knowledge of the world. So it's this sort of you decompose this fundamental unity into a subject and an object and it's necessary and, and meaning is basically just a relationship between a subject and an object so oh. you can, and you can find these viewpoints in as i say this we look at three different approaches to this and one was by Pauli together with jung with carl jung oh fantastic he, they had a collaboration i don't know if you know you know about that so Pauli went to jung as a as a patient okay he had a complete nervous breakdown. He was mad, basically, Wolfgang <laughs> Pauli. Do you know who Pauli is? Uh, I'm not super expert. He's not quite as famous. I'm as more that. familiar with Young. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Well, he was Swiss as well. He was from the same place. He was from Zurich as well, so from the same place as Young. And he got a Nobel Prize in physics for his work in quantum theory. He came up with the idea of the exclusion principle okay. in physics, which What's is the exclusion principle. It's that you can't have more than one electron in the same state in a quantum system. So you can't bring two electrons and make them sit at the same point, for example. So they're sort of very unfriendly, whereas <laughs> the opposite of a, an electron, which is a fermion... Fermion? A, a fermion. It's not a proton. F fermions is the generic name for matter particles. Okay. Now... With matter particles, you can't make them have the same properties and sit at the same point in space time. With bosons, which is the other thing, force yes. particles, you can make as many sit on top of each other as you like. That's how you get things like lasers. They're oh, sort yeah, of coherent yeah. states. So they sort of aggregate and they're sort of gregarious you know, entities. Fermions, they don't like to kind of be together. And that's how you get the structure of matter. That's why you don't go put your hand through chairs and stuff like that. Right? <laughs> so Pauli basically came up with that principle. But he was also completely mad in his personal life. He was absolutely... <laughs> Mental. He, he was terrible. He had a thing for sort of slightly crazy women. And okay. he, got, he got cheated on quite badly. I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he kind of got left by a, a rather cr crazy woman. I think he had a bit of a mother complex going on. And he had a full-on nervous breakdown. Huh. And... Who was it? I think it might have even been Einstein who sent him to go and see Young. Einstein also used to have dinners with, you know, have evenings with Young and, and whatnot when he was in Switzerland. 
Um, but he got sent to Young and he started with analysis and he got really into it. He loved the idea, probably a bit of narcissism. He just kept bringing all of these dreams to Young over and over again and saying, look at this, this is an amazing dream. There's like a big clock and there's these Chinese ladies and <laughs> like, this is, that was a real one. <laughs> I didn't make that up. There was a big clock, a world clock and a Chinese lady. And yeah, so he, anyway, he, he, went, he was in analysis trying to cure that thing and he started getting into, into Jung's theories of the collective unconscious and the idea that there was some deeper level to reality collective unconscious the collective unconscious the idea that in addition to you know your ordinary awareness yes there's also this other sort of collective uh, consciousness collective unconscious 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 the reason why you know you might often find yourself doing things and wondering why the fuck you did them <laughs> and you repeatedly do some behavior i, I stop which wondering. you want to stop yes but you can't well the reason for that is supposed to be because there's a whole bunch of archetypes of things or things driving you that you don't you're not aware of because you haven't made them conscious the whole idea of Jung's theory of depth psychology is to make all of those hidden drivers um, manifest conscious and dreams the idea is that dreams are the thing that is sort of indicating it's trying to tell you look you're incomplete you're not whole until you sort of figure this little bit out mm -hmm. and it's like screaming at you to take notice and make some aspect of yourself conscious. And you know, this is where the concept of the shadow and stuff comes from. Interesting. Right? All the things you don't like about yourself might be like, you don't like to feel vulnerable and you don't like to do connect in some way. You pushed it into the shadow and you're not whole until you sort of bring that bit back into consciousness and sort of accept some flaws and these kind of things. I was reading about the theory that says that, um, was trying to discredit all of the dream interpretation theories, saying yeah. that dr uh, dreaming is just like a byproduct of sleeping and mm -hmm. there is no real meaning. It's just like noise. And what we really need is just sleep. Yeah. What do you think about dreaming? Yeah, that's, that's like, that's the standard view. And it's sort of like probably the orthodox view in science and it relates to the reductionist view again fortunately that's changing a lot I, I think it's bullshit i think it's obvious if you've had some if you actually take notice of your dreams you can see that they're so obviously symbolic and relevant yes. especially if you're in some sort of um, crisis mode or something like that it's absolutely utterly obvious that there's symbolic stuff going on and I mean, think about it. Why would your brain, which has all of this organization and order, suddenly collapse as soon as you go to sleep? Like, what's happening? The neurons just suddenly go, oh, fuck. It's just like, Jesus, like, chill out here for a bit. And then, like, they all get back together again. Like, like this, the structure is still there. The structure of your memories and your rational thought is all still there. Absolutely. And f fortunately in science, there's a whole bunch of people now who have started working on... Um, the scientific study of dreams as sort of important um, tools in understanding consciousness. So there's a guy called Mark Soames, mm -hmm. S-O-L-M-S, who's, who's in South Africa, who sort of developed this field called neuro, neuropsychology. Okay. And the idea is to integrate um, not even Jungian, um, Jung's theory of dreaming, but Freud's theory of dreaming, which they now think was pretty good. Okay. He had some good ideas, and that so there's a Did bit he? of a renaissance of Freud's theory in neuroscience, with this guy Mark Soames, who's, who's written a very good book called *The Hidden Spring*. 
okay. where he discusses all of these things. And he was doing things like, because he wants to figure out um, when it's safe to say that somebody's conscious and when it's safe to say that there's no consciousness there anymore. Like if you're dealing with people in vegetative states or something like that, or if you're trying to figure out how people have been altered by some serious brain injury or a lesion in the brain, what does he do? Usually you're, I mean, you ask some very basic questions, you know, trying to see whether they can still understand language. What Mark Soames does is ask them about their dreams to see how they've changed as a result of trauma. That's fascinating. And they change in very specific, interesting um, ways connected to the to the diseases. And I had, like, on, on my experience, uh, dreams that... I've been chased by dreams. Like, <laughs> uh, I had these uh, recurring dreams where I, I was actually being... Uh, chased and I, I felt like trapped and then uh as soon as i changed something in uh, in my life the dream stopped mm -hmm. uh but also like what do you think about like lucid dreaming and stuff like that um well, what do you mean by lucid uh, dreaming like people lucid dreaming like um there is a uh status in which you are able to be aware of your dreams while you're dreaming and you can like control what's going on in the dream yeah. um I, i've had those i've had a few of them. not many but uh, i got close but not quite <laughs> uh, what did that mean how, how close um, what way close sleep uh paralysis uh, what is it called uh I think it's called sleep paralysis or something like that. But basically, I was not able to... Uh, I was awake, but yeah. I was sleeping at the same time. Yeah. So I couldn't move. And was I it was, scary? It was terrifying. Yeah, were you trying to shout at yourself to wake up? <laughs> I think... I think uh, it, the, the reason why it was terrifying is because, like, it was the first time that it was happening and I couldn't understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. So there was an overlap. Uh, I was sleeping and I was dreaming, but my eyes were open and I could see my room. So I could see, like it was like, you know, like a transparency kind of thing. Like I could see my dreams happening in the actual room where I was mm. and I was not able to move because, you know, when you sleep in theory, you have some um, like muscles mm. don't, you know, better mm. than... I cannot explain it, but uh, it turns off the motor. Yes, okay. that that thing. Uh, so I was not able to move, and I was seeing these things. I was like, "What's going on?" And it was like super terrifying. Yeah, no, I've had something similar. I mean, there's a. I mean, you can possibly deflate it and say that the whole thing might have been a dream, and you might not have been <laughs> seeing your room, and your eyes might not have been open. You might have dreamt that you were in that state with your. <laughs> That's also a possibility. Uh, but, I, but I think I've had a, a similar thing, like when I was. Um, when I was at university, I was a little bit mad when I was at university in terms of sort of working to extreme levels. And I tried to see how long I could go, just to see what happened to my thoughts. I tried to keep myself awake for as long as possible. Oh, that's extremely dangerous. Yeah, well, I, I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I got, to, um, I got to five days of no sleep. Wow. And... <laughs> And then, and it was quite interesting actually. The like the thoughts do change a bit. You you do genuinely go a little bit mad, and your thoughts become a little bit more lucid, and you notice a bit more connections. It's a little bit schizophrenic, to be honest. I've done forty eight hours. That was my. Well, that's that will you'll sort of get the beginnings of it at forty eight yeah. hours yeah. of like holding longer thoughts together, longer series of thoughts and whatnot. I often do forty eight hours when I'm finishing 
a book actually. Oh, you still do lots it. of phases of forty-eight hours, yeah, to hold some elongated thought. What do you think together. about polyphasic sleeping? What is that? I've never heard of that. So I don't know if it's a myth or a legend or something, but uh, apparently uh, Leonardo da Vinci and Nikola Tesla and all of these people uh, were doing yes, this. Yes, yes, just on the on the threshold, just before they fell asleep they would have these visions the no 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 uh, it was something about the sleep cycles instead of like uh so we have like a um sleep cycle that is like you, you sleep for seven eight nine hours then you're awake for like uh, the rest uh, but they were doing this um they were adopting yeah, yeah this this it, it, basically i think the ratio was uh three hours awake yeah. and like 40 minutes of like power nap yeah 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 forever yeah, yeah, yeah and this way you you get much more awake time wake time yeah but it's kind of so you fall uh, straight into um REM phase you entirely skip deep sleep mm. uh which is not healthy as well and in theory if you if it, if you um, do like uh, heavy physical activities, it's definitely not recommended because like your body needs uh, deep sleep to regenerate. But uh, apparently it's super good for your like uh, brain power. Yeah. You know, they did it on the Manhattan Project, the Atomic yes. Bomb Project. Yes. They were experimenting with all sorts of, of theories on sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I think, but I think quite a lot of people, of academics have probably tried to do like mad academics who want to just juice as much as they can out of the day have tried all sorts of things to be honest like the the natural one is probably the <laughs> best one on the basis of my experience of doing these various so what happened things. after the five days of like sleep oh, deprivation yeah, yeah. so i i like i started seeing like hallucinations like on the toilet seat and you know like little creatures and stuff like that and then i collapsed on the bed and i had exactly this sort of wake feeling of um, absolute terror. So I thought I'd woken up and I went to wash my face and look at myself in the in the bathroom mirror. And even though nothing really happened... I when just, did you wake up? Like after I, well, oh, I didn't wake up. This is the, <laughs> the story. I thought I was absolutely convinced I was awake. And I went over to the bathroom mirror and splashed some water on my face and looked at it and I just felt that this is really, really wrong. And I just got the most horrible feeling of dread I've ever had in my life. And I was like screaming at myself into the mirror to wake up. I was like, wake up, please wake <laughs> up. Because it was just absolutely hideously terrifying. It was just ugh, the worst feeling ever for no reason, because nothing weird was happening other than I knew I wasn't awake. It wow. was a disgusting feeling, actually. Interesting. Then, how, how old were you? Uh, that was my first degree. Uh, it must have been like 20, 19, something like that. Okay. That was good. It was, it was kind of good in a in an interesting way. I'm glad I did it. Were you keeping records of your like experiment or? No, 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 no. <laughs> it wasn't quite serious. So, what was the goal of that? Like, what were you trying to figure out or discover? Well, just, or to, just to see what curiosity. Yeah, just to see what happens to thought. Just to see whether I could have different thoughts, like slightly more interesting thoughts. And I was doing philosophy degree at, at that point. Okay. Yeah. So I just, okay, I'd left music, I was at music college before then and had different experiences uh, <laughs> That's in, in an attempt to um, <laughs> try and have different thoughts. 
<laughs> That's we have a question from a viewer. Who's um, that? You have viewers. Angus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you surprised? <laughs> this is a legit thing. <laughs> is astro traveling real in your opinion? Question mark. Astro traveling? Uh, I don't. Not in my opinion. I can't imagine how that would be. It depends how you define it. Uh, everything depends how you. <laughs> Yeah. How you define it? I, I assume it means that you're traveling in your mind whilst not traveling in your body, but that kind of assumes that there's a separation between the mind and the body, which I'm kind of not agreeing with. That the whole business of the thing I mentioned earlier, the dual aspect yeah. theory, says that they are one and the same. They're literally identical. They're two aspects of one and the same thing. So it doesn't really make sense to be traveling with your mind without there being a body that goes alongside it. That's sort of it. This is the um, in that point of view. uniquity um, conundrum. Like, uh, w where does our consciousness reside? Like, if, if, because there are theories that claim that we're going to be able eventually to transfer our consciousness into like machines or like a cloud or like um, artificial bodies or that mm. we can clone or create. But then what happens to the like original one? Who's us then and like what happens to the other one like is it like a split in duality and how does you, that work uh yeah okay i mean i don't think it really makes sense to say transfer your consciousness exactly. into another thing what you can do is produce a, a another piece of matter another piece of matter that has a subjective perspective <laughs> maybe even your memories yes and all of these kind of things it's quite clearly not going to be you because it hasn't had the history, the life history, or any of those. Uh, on a physical things. perspective, like, hasn't had the experiences that I had yeah, as exactly. a physical subject. But, exactly. But mentally, it could remember to have done certain things. Even yeah, you might, exactly. You, if, you, if, you could, <laughs> if you could, neuron for neuron, atom for atom, replicate your entire body. Yes. Cell, cell by cell, then obviously you would end up with a, a thing <laughs> that thought, I'm not calling you a thing. No, 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 with, yeah, with I, a, I agree, I understand. A, you know, a handsome Italian <laughs> object that would think it, it was you. And, you know, and then what? But <laughs> it's not you, but it would think it was you because you've created it. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> why do you think it's not possible to transfer consciousness? Um, because, again, it goes back to the, the dual aspect thing. You're, you cannot separate. You can't separate. I mean, basically, can, I can look at you, or you can look at yourself in two ways, right? You can look at your body and look at your hands and think, okay, this is a, an object here. That's the outside view, right? I'm an object. There you go. My hands follow the laws of physics and all of these kind of things. They're not violating anything like that. Or you can look at it from the inside perspective, and you can feel like, oh, I'm moving my hand, actually. It's me that's doing all of these things, using acts of will, and it feels a certain way. But it's one and the same thing. You're looking at it from two different aspects, but it's one and the same thing. So your consciousness is still attached to this matter. The matter is just another way of viewing you. You can either view it as a subject, this inside view, or as an object, an outside view. So to speak of transferring this inside view makes no sense. You can duplicate it yeah. so that you've got a very similar exterior thing that exists and would have a similar interior experience as no, well, but it's, it's a it. different thing. Yes. Yeah, I get it, I get it. Transferring doesn't make sense in mm. these terms. I, I was, I was, 
I mean, if you read stuff like um, Sapiens, for instance, basically all humanity is reduced to a mere biological machine. There's nothing else. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the counter argument, ca- argument is reality is a projection. So nothing really exists but it's just 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 us creating it as we go and it's subjective Mm -hmm. uh and that makes matter meaningless in a way because it's like how we perceive matter it's not like what it really is you know what i mean Mm, that sounds a little bit like um Emmanuel Kant. <laughs> Please Actually. no. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> You've got some German tendencies in there. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm extremely uh, pragmatic and rational, I, I like to say. Uh, I like to believe. I'm, uh, my favorite philosopher is actually Wittgenstein. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to know why uh, that reaction. But <laughs> what do you think about Wittgenstein? I liked his early stuff, actually. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the, the second part it doesn't make any sense. Oh, that's good. The okay, language, cheers. language. <laughs> no, yeah, no. Like yeah, the first stuff where it's a little bit mystical, even in the like the Tractatus is a mystical text. Like, you know, there are things that we don't know, and you have to be silent about them. You can't speak. That's a, the most mystical statement ever written in philosophy, I think. It's very I, I nice. don't know if I would call it mystical, but I totally agree with it. Like, if you don't know about things, just shut up. But that's, it's there are truths about reality that you can't formulate linguistically or conceptually. That's what he's saying. That's mysticism. Yes. That's like the definition of mysticism. Is there are <laughs> things beyond Comprehension. what you can yeah, formulate using language and whatnot. You have to just experience them directly or something something well like that. we might be close to a breakthrough in that what do you think about uh neural link I, I don't know what that is what is it um elon musk is developing this new technology Ooh. you know heard of it no uh so basically they're putting um chips in brains ah, okay and the idea so the reason why they started is uh they're trying to fix the problem of like um people who have lost an arm of like they're paralyzed ah i know what it is yeah 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 so they can control like a prosthetic robotic limb with yes, with yes. just a brain yeah, yeah yeah but then they realized i didn't know that was musk actually but yeah okay they're experimenting on pigs, I think, at the moment. Uh, last updated I saw. But the, the the theory and all the speculation and all, like they realize that if you can control a prosthetic arm with your brain, eventually you're going to be able to control like your phone and you don't mm-hmm. need your hands to text anyone. You can just like think about texting somebody and you can actually be telepathic in a way. Like mm-hmm. just through machine, you become like a sort of like this cyborg that needs the cloud to communicate and everyone is going to be connected to the point where you actually don't need language anymore because if you can bypass uh language and you can transmit your thoughts Mm. because we we used to think that what do you think about this like we're so used to think we're so used to language that we think that we think in terms of words but we actually don't like our subconscious doesn't use words Mm. then we convert with we translate 
and and if if we can communicate on that like previous uh, stage, yeah, on a more primitive level, I'm not. I don't know whether it's fully possible. So the so the neural link. I'd no, no, nothing of this. The I'm neural not. link idea. So you have to train a certain set of cells. You over and over ag again. You kind of train a certain group of cells to mean move left to the chip, basically. So or move right or grip or something like that. That's what you're doing. You're training a group of areas. So you can even think of a elephant, right? And then from now on, elephant means clench fist. Oh, yeah. When yeah. I think of an elephant, clench fist. Uh, so I was trying to teach my dog to sit when I was saying pillow. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just it, it would work. And, like, anything would work. It just needs to be the repetition trains the yeah, set yeah, of... Very Pavlovian approach. Yeah. So that's one thing. That's sort of a way of controlling. The idea of, of beaming sort of conceptual thoughts and ideas to other people is very different because what I'm not I can't really view that in the same way as this neural link thing works the neural link seems to work very differently from the next step of beaming actual content to other people because your content is going to be very different from my content absolutely the way I represent some idea or think of some object is, is completely different yes so I'm not sure it's possible. I think there might be an in-principle impossibility in doing it, but I'm not sure. Well, it's it's hard to tell uh, yet. <laughs> like how, because supposing I do, for some reason, have an association between elephants and whatever, and wine, for some reason, because my history associates, for whatever reason, elephants with wine. You're not going to have those associations, so it's going to be gibberish. My beaming of a set of ideas are going to be gibberish, because they're going to be my ideas where I've built up what I mean by this particular concept. So I think it's it would be like speaking to a dog, actually. <laughs> like it would have no idea what your concepts mean. Well, other than some basic ones, some very basic ones. Hmm. I mean, the, 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 the purpose of language, why language was born in the first place, is to facilitate communication. Yeah. So we kind of need it. That's the, the later Wittgenstein goes into these sort of private language issues yeah. actually, and that's when things get very difficult. Uh, I think there's value in his like latest work, but not as much as the <laughs> early Wittgenstein. Yeah, what was that famous? There was some famous line about if a, if a lion could speak, we wouldn't understand what he means, <laughs> just because he has a completely different existence, so we wouldn't have a clue what his concepts mean. So I think there'd be a sort of a a similar but lesser version of that going on between various people where you just wouldn't have a clue what the hell their concepts mean and what they're trying to beam to you. I think we reached an impasse. What is time? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> I, I, I don't think time is... I, I need more wine in this class <laughs> for that. Yes, <laughs> happy to with that. What is time? Like, what honestly... Is time? I come over here in good faith. <laughs> um, I think. Uh, my point is, I don't technically believe in time. Okay. So you tell me what you think time is, and this is good, and I'll listen. Um, well, I, I. Okay. Time. I think is absolutely relative to the system where it's measured. Mm -hmm. 
and on larger scales it doesn't make much sense like the relevance of it is like nearly none what about sort of the evolution of processes in the universe that lead to the formation of particular substances that need to evolve a certain amount of time so that you can get things like carbon and things like that okay um what about you know the theories of um parallel universes and the fact that there is a possibility that everything that has ever happened is happening at the same time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so what is time then well it would be localized to each individual universe and probably some of them might not have a temporal dimension they might be just um, points that go out of existence immediately um some might have two temporal dimensions so you can have <laughs> how would that work well there's such a thing as planar time if you've got two dimension it means you've got like a plane and that means you can go and do loops and things like that so if time travel is possible it would kind of mean you've got something a bit like planar time if you're sort of one way of thinking of time travel is that you're going in loops on this little little plane but there are there are theorems and um, that mathematicians have come up with that seem to show that it might it's probably impossible in a world like ours to have two time dimensions it's like oh, causality gets messed up basically when you have two <laughs> time dimensions and then things fail to make sense yeah it sounds uh, improbable <laughs> yeah, it's pretty improbable so what I mean so it doesn't really make much difference time is obviously I mean one thing that happens in um, in modern physics is that time becomes a physical dimension time in physics becomes a physical dimension that sort of changes just like any other physical system right this is just einstein's theory of general relativity yeah the way the best way of thinking about that is that space time becomes a dynamical object right so just like a particle can move around and change depending on what forces are pushing on it and moving around space time also can change depending on what forces are pushing it around right all you need is a mass like this. My fist right here is a mass. It's curving space-time a very, very tiny bit around it now. If I move it over there, I've just changed the structure of space-time from, from the mass being in one area to another. So I've changed where the curvature is. So I've changed not only the space but the time around there, the space-time. So it's like a very variable, malleable entity. And this is why, going back to time travel again, if you want to build a time machine, you... S- General relativity gives you almost instructions on what you need to have a universe that allows time travel, right? Because you're bending and warping space-time, depending on what the mass is doing, all you need to do is find the right kind of mass that's going to bend time into the right kind of closed circle so that it can go back on itself. And there's a mathematician, a logician called Kurt Gödel, who came up with this exact solution, a version of this solution in 1941, I think it was. It was in a volume for Einstein's birthday, sort of a festrift volume, a sort of celebration volume for Einstein. And he showed how you could have these things called closed time-like curves where you can go into your own past. But that's not our universe, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately, probably wouldn't be a good thing to have it. I, I think we're pretty lucky not to have it. Yeah, it wouldn't be so good, would it? I think it would mess things up quite dramatically. 
Yeah. I mean, you've got a photo, you know, you're back to the future, poster for it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it can go so wrong, you can end up, you know, almost shagging your mother and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would, be, that would be not nice. But um, I don't know what kind of rules would apply because, like, since it's impossible... Um, like what the consequence, uh, like no, what no, the no, logic not, would be. It's not impossible. It's, it's possible. It's physically possible relative to the laws of general relativity. What Gödel did, this logician, Kurt Gödel, was provide a solution to the equations of general relativity, which means this is a possibility, a, log- a nomological possibility <laughs> is how philosophers call it, a real physical possibility of there being a world with time travel which is true relative to Einstein's theory. It's just that the matter in our universe isn't right, isn't the right kind of stuff. So there's, <laughs> so there's people, there's like crazy physicists who come up with ideas where you, there's a guy, Kip Thorne, he got the Nobel Prize actually recently for the gravitational detection of gravitational radiation. And he has a great book called something like Black Holes, Wormholes and baby universes or something like that where he details exactly the kind of materials that we almost might be able to produce <laughs> to be able to make a little wormhole that would be usable as a closed time like curve where you could do time travel do you think it's a matter of time no no, no, <laughs> no it's just it's too it's too improbable and the wormholes pinch have a tendency to pinch off and close themselves up so I mean, you couldn't get anything through it. You couldn't send anything through it. That's the, that's paradoxically, the if time travel was actually something that humanity would achieve eventually, wouldn't we have it already? Because they could be traveling back. Yeah. So that's kind of that's like uh, exactly where where are all the time travel? It's like Fermi's paradox. Yeah. Like where are all the these time travelers? Well, they might be around. You never know. I might be one. I might just be pretending. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm an alien. <laughs> yeah. Life um, beyond Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm all for it. <laughs> uh, okay. Does humanity need, um, as a species, to move beyond Earth to survive? I... Th- mm. Not really. I think humans have uh, inbuilt problems, psychological <laughs> problems. <laughs> and I think it would be almost immoral for them to spread their psychological problems elsewhere at the present time. I think they need to fix themselves first. And then they can spread, and spread it nicely, rather than spreading shit all over the universe. Oh, that makes sense. That makes <laughs> sense. Imagine giving guns to people in, like, the 300s. Like, it's just like, eh. It doesn't make it make any sense i'm like seriously what have we done to this planet as it as it stands but that's the point like that's the virus theory like we we're not gonna become any better than we are so we need to just go to another planet and destroy that one as well and then keep moving exactly there's a, there's a book called i wish i could remember the guy's name the book's called unfit for the future basically <laughs> but it kind of applies to this unfit for spreading ourselves elsewhere as well and it basically focuses on this idea that we have this tragedy of the commons where we want to use up all the resources for ourselves now and be greedy and we don't privilege the the future enough we act as if 
you know, the present moment is everything that exists and that, that needs the, to be fixed. Isn't the present moment everything that exists anyway? I, well, it might be, but it's also the place where we create what will exist. <laughs> yes. Basically. I mean, so, so I've written, uh, this is what people do on podcasts. I've actually written a book, but it's, it doesn't have a publisher or anything yet. Oh. On exactly this kind of issue. So it's called, uh, what is it called again? <laughs> uh, Life's Too Short for Long Books. <laughs> but, like one of the things it looks at. When are you going to publish it? I have no idea because I don't, I was going to self-publish it, but I'm, I don't think I'm going to now. So I'm going to see what I can do with it. Okay. But anyway, it's not anywhere yet. But one of the things that I discuss is this idea of a disease of time. Interesting. So we have, I think all humans have a disease of time. We privilege the present, and economists have noted it for ages, it's called hyperbolic discounting. The further ahead in the future we look, the less we value it. So, for example, with this podcast, I agreed to do it three months ago or something like that. It was a while ago because it seemed like ah, three months, fine, whatever. <laughs> three months, Dean can sort that out. Future problems. And that's fine. Yeah, exactly. So we, do, we tend to do this quite a lot. Whereas if you said, come and do the podcast tomorrow, I probably would have gone, uh, it's not maybe, as important as... Maybe yeah. not, maybe not. So we discount the future, and basically that's what we do on a planetary scale. If you add up all of our little diseases of time, individual diseases of time, you get the reason for climate collapse and population control and these kind of things. We're just terrible to our The point is that at some stars. point, future becomes present. Well, exactly, exactly. We are creating our future's present and the future's past, basically. So if you, yes. you know... So this is um, the point, point I was going to make is the solution is to precisely see the present moment as the thing that you use to, to create, create the, the future. future that you want. Yeah. And then you, you can carve it like a sculpture, basically. You can do exactly what you want with it. There's constraints by the laws of physics and by whether you've got enough money to do a certain thing. But in a, a very large way, you can carve a, an interesting, nice future where you're not shitty to your future self and other <laughs> future selves and the, the, the problem is people don't have enough of a vivid conception of that particular future they don't feel like they have any control <laughs> over it I think that's part of the problem because it's not something material it's not something tangible but it but it was all you have to do is look at your present self now and look back at the past and realize that this now was created by a series of actions that were physical yes and that's all that's going to happen again you're going to you're going to perform a bunch physical, though. It depends whether you're a dual aspect theorist. <laughs> yes. From the outside, they were physical. From the inside, they were, they were mental acts of will. But that's, but that's a good point. They were. It was a series of mental acts of will. Some of them you were probably not conscious of, and you were just kind of going I mean, along most of them with something or being bounced around by other things happening. But there will have been decisive points at which you made decisions, and then you made this moment here now happen wouldn't have happened otherwise without decisive acts of will which were done from the inside by you and then it's the same thing with the future a bunch of acts of will are going to lead you to a shitty future or a non-shitty future basically and you can't control everything obviously but you can control massive parts of it I think and anyway there are basically every case scenario exists in alternative realities well, if you believe that kind of thing. <laughs> Do you believe that kind of thing? Not really. I mean, uh, no. <laughs> what do you believe? You know, it's not completely 
crazy. Like the best, I think the best reason for believing it is it's about the only decent explanation for why the world is as it is, exactly this way, with these laws of physics and and whatnot. Like, so Einstein tried to explain why the world is the way it is by coming up with one single theory that gets it exactly right. And you can't change any parameter or any little piece of the theory without destroying the coherence of the whole theory. Now, that sounds really implausible to me, that there would be a one single theory that describes it all. Yeah. I think it sounds way more plausible to me to think that there's loads of possibilities, and this is one of them. And then you do the anthropic principle, right? The reason why we find ourselves in this one is because, well, we wouldn't be here if there weren't these laws. Because if you change the laws a bit, you wouldn't be able to have complex structures clumping together and you wouldn't have the Pauli exclusion principle, we'd be falling through objects and we wouldn't be able to survive. So if you have a whole bunch, a bit, this big ensemble of universes with all possible combinations of the, the laws of physics and the constants of nature, we're going to be in there somewhere and we're going to be in one that's like this because we have to be because we can't survive in any of the others. In any of the other, yeah. That's like Max Tegmark's. Have you heard of Max Tegmark? This no. Some physicist, he has this thing called the mathematical universe hypothesis. What does it say? So it's like, it's the multiverse hypothesis taken one step more extreme. <laughs> okay. Where not only does he include all possible physical universes, he treats all the, these universes as mathematical structures. So he says there's an ensemble of all possible mathematical structures. And we are a mathematical structure. We're just one that has these properties. And the thing about mathematical structures is that they're necessary. Their existence is necessary. Like mathematical truths and structures are, exist for all eternity. So that's why the universe exists as well, because it's necessary. It has to exist, because it's a mathematical structure. Necessary to what? Just that you, cannot de you can't deny the truth of mathematical principles and laws without contradiction. Uh, wasn't Einstein that was a bit... Um I want to say surprised when uh, the uh, Schrodinger experiment and like the fact that like in uh, quantum physics, the you can explain it much better than I can. But the thing is, when you measure, you know what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. like it, it, it's, it changes the, the result. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can, can you like, I'm really curious to understand yeah, so it was, if I um, get it better. But. It was a, uh, an argument he had with Niels Bohr. Yes. So, and it's often misinterpreted actually. So, because he said this thing, God does not play dice, everybody says, ah, he didn't like probabilities or something like that. That's a complete misinterpretation. Your version is the right version, which is that what he, didn't, what he didn't like was the fact that there was some special status given to observers where they're almost involved in the creation of facts about reality. So he famously said, is the moon there when nobody looks <laughs> right it's like the old is the tree there yeah it? yeah the tree uh, falls in. so it's the moon there when nobody looks einstein thought it was ludicrous to think that the, the observer had any role in whether th something's real or not so he, he was a realist basically yes. he's a realist. he thought that um <laughs> there is a way that the world is independently of humans absolutely B niels bohr's version of quantum mechanics it's often called the copenhagen interpretation but that's like a complex issue, figuring out what that thing is. But what Bohr thought was that 
you don't have facts in the world, you don't have reality as such until you've made it, until you've established it in an experiment and made it a fact and stamped it with a publicly communicable result, basically. So you need an observer. It's the thing I mentioned earlier, right? You need an observer and an object, the observed, to make sense of knowledge of the world yes. and provide meaning. It's a little bit different in Bose interpretation because it's almost as if there's sort of this weird ineffable realm when you're not looking at the world. The world is in some weird hazy state where it's not quite actual. It's in some potential state. And then you make a measurement and then this thing called the wave function which describes the state of a quantum system collapses. So at one point when you're not looking at it, it's in this weird superposition. This is the Schrodinger cat thing, yes. right? It's the state, it could have two peaks. Your little wave function could have two peaks. Cat alive, cat dead. Obviously, quantum mechanics says that it will generically be in that state when you're not looking in the box. We know we never see both alivey, deady cat things. So what ha must happen is that there's this next process which involves the measurement, which collapses it onto one or the other. So you've got this double little wave function thing, alive, dead, and then you make a measurement and it goes, poof, okay, it's definitely dead or it's definitely alive, and then that's the establishment of a fact. And then Bohr thought that the observer was somehow creating the fact. So the human doesn't necessarily have to be human, but when you've, got, when you've got like yeah. an, ir an irreversible record of something happening, that's only when you have facts about the world. And the theory is that the other case scenario happens in an alternate r uh, reality. Well, that's a very different interpretation. <laughs> that's, um, that's Everett's interpretation, the many worlds interpretation. Yes, many worlds interpretation. So did you know that um, Hugh Everett's son was, is Mark Everett from the Eels, by the way? No. He is. Oh. And a lot of his songs are kind of about this weird shit. You can hear him. There's some very funny tapes where he's where Hugh Everett, who came up with the Many Worlds interpretation, is getting pissed in his living room with this guy, Charlie Misner, who was a student of, who was a really good general relativity guy. Like, seriously, ridiculously good. And in the background is Mark Everett playing on the drums, <laughs> and they're just kind of getting drunk talking about quantum mechanics <laughs> on these recordings. But anyway, so Everett is the student of somebody I'm writing a biography of. Okay. Uh, another book I'm writing is the biography of John Archibald Wheeler. I, it rings a bell. Um, who's, he was a, he came up with the, the black hole idea and he came up with wormhole concepts okay, and all okay, of these okay, kind of okay. crazy ideas. He was sort of, but he also did like serious work. He did the fission paper with Niels Bohr in 1939 okay. that led to the bomb. So he did all of that stuff. And then the second half of his life, he went like, oh, fuck. He went, went sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> this is awful. I'm going to go do some crazy shit. And started working on wormholes and the problem of existence, why there's something rather than nothing and things like that. So his student in 1956, in the 1950s, was Hugh Everett, who came up with the Everett interpretation. And it was his PhD thesis with John Wheeler, this interpretation. And it got completely destroyed initially. So what Wheeler did was took it to Niels Bohr and said, what do you think of this? So Everett's interpretation says... So that little two-way functions thing we've got, where you've got Schrodinger cat alive, Schrodinger cat dead, as you mentioned, he says that both of those are true. Both of those happen. There's no collapse. There's no measurer going in and collapsing it to definitely alive or definitely dead, 
all that happens is when somebody makes a, makes a measurement, one branch goes down the cat alive thing, and all they ever experience is cat alive. And then there's a separate detached branch that experiences cat dead. And there's never a collapse, and there's just this one big universal wave function of the universe that contains all these possible branches of all possible happenings. But nothing ever actually happens. This is what Bohr's problem was. There's no fact that gets created. Probability doesn't even make sense because everything's happening. Probability means that you get uh, something happening. Yeah. Probability that you get a whatever, a heads. Well, you need to actually get the head in order to, for the probability to make sense. Yes. In Everett's interpretation, you get heads and tails. So what the fuck does probability mean? But not, mean not you, like a different version of you. Well, yeah, but you're still getting the Both. outcome that yeah. is heads and the... Well, it's not an outcome. You get heads down one branch and tails down the other branch. Yeah, and you split. That's right. Like, what happens is that the individual also splits. Their consciousness also splits. So it wasn't really taken very seriously for a long, long time. I can imagine interpretation. why. <laughs> but, the, but the reason it did... Uh, but obviously now it's like the main interpretation. People are crazy about this I think because of Rick and Morty... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe amongst non-physicists, Rick and Morty and Big Bang Theory and all that stuff played a role. But like the main reason is that you, in the Copenhagen interpretation, you need the observer on the and the observed. But one of the things people started dealing with, and John Wheeler was dealing with, was well, what happens if you if you're looking at the universe as a whole itself? Treat the universe as an object, like you do in cosmology. Okay, what about quantum cosmology? Does the universe, taken as a ob single object, have one of these wave function things? Well, Niels Bohr can't say anything about that because he needs an observer outside, outside of, the, of universe. the universe. Well, what does that mean, outside of the universe? There's nothing outside of the universe. Observers are inside the universe. They have to be. So you can't ever make sense of the notion of quantum cosmology in according to that interpretation but you can with everett's interpretation because the universe has a wave function like everything else it is just one big wave function with all the branches so then people started taking it seriously because it was the only possible interpretation for a while that allowed you to do that quantum cosmology and quantum gravity this other thing that I work on. is the universe a closed system seems to be seems what, to be what's the most uh a knowledge theory the most like the most common uh theory um accepted you, what, by closed universe you mean if you go in in far enough in one direction you'll come no, no, back no 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 i mean like head. uh <laughs> um energy doesn't get created or destroyed but just like ah, changes you mean like that yeah i mean like that um yeah, it seems to be a, a closed system. Like, so far as we know, that law holds that you can't create or destroy energy. It just gets transformed into various kinds or goes into entropy. And then yeah. we're going to end up in this maximal entropy state where there's no structure whatsoever. And is that a cycle or is it like a one-way trip? It depends. There's loads of theories here. Okay, this is it's like opened a massive thing up again. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so okay <laughs> so there's a guy called Boltzmann Ludwig, Ludwig Boltzmann who came up with the theory of statistical mechanics 
The theory of statistical mechanics is our was the, the explanation of thermodynamics, the laws of thermodynamics. Um, and it's a probabilistic theory. So it says that, um, so we have the second law that entropy always increases, right? Yes. His way of, of thinking about that was that it's more probable for there to be disorder than there is for there to be order, basically. It's the, the more probable situation. So we're going to expect there to be okay. disorder and higher entropy in the future. So, okay. Now, his theory is that, I mean, it involves the idea that the universe is a closed system, and there's sort of like a finite number of possibilities in the system if you've got a closed system. Remember, he had a theory of particles, not like anything weird. So it was just particles moving around. If you've got a closed system and you've got infinite time, which he thought that you had, then they're going to cycle over and over again. And over time, they're going to repeat behaviors that they've done once. So this universe is basically a bunch of particles doing stuff. <laughs> and then they come apart and go into this equilibrium state where, there's, where you've got maximal entropy. Okay. But in statistical mechanics, there are always fluctuations. Like there's a probability that all of the gas, all of the oxygen in this room will suddenly go into that corner over there. But it's massively, minusculely improbable. improbable, right? So it's it's quite it's so when a couple of part of you know like air particles change place, it doesn't make any difference to the overall state of this room, right? So we don't notice it. Um, when all of the oxygen goes into that corner of the room over there, we'd notice it because we'd die. But it's very, very, very improbable. So there are always these fluctuations that are possible, though. So if you've got infinite time, well, that's going to happen eventually in infinite time. All the oxygen is going to go into that corner of the room. Likewise, if you've got this state of maximum entropy where everything's just died down, you can't do anything with the energy anymore, you're going to get massive fluctuations. And one of the ideas is that we are one of those fluctuations. One of those fluctuations was our Big Bang. So you've got this nice, calm state of no you know, entropy change or anything, and then bang, fluctuation, and we call that the Big Bang. And we're just the after effects of one of those fluctuations from this state of maximum disorder. And we're going to eventually go back into it. So the reason why we have things like the direction of time is because we've come from this little low entropy um, um, past where this fluctuation happens. But we're going to go ahead, we're going ahead into higher entropy again. And that sort of describes the direction of time as well. And it will happen over and over again, according to this theory. So there will be like an eternal recurrence, like Nietzsche's theory. I don't want to, yeah. That no. probably wasn't particularly clear, but it's hard to explain. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, it does make sense. Um, yeah, Nietzsche's... Um, anyway. I mean, there are tons of versions of cosmologies where there are cycles. Yes. People are obsessed with cycles. I, yes. I, I like cycles. Who doesn't like a good I mean, cycle? cycles f feels natural. Like, it, I think it's a comfort zone. Yeah, um. exactly. Exactly. What, I mean, we always see, you know, the lunar cycle. Where, and so it's kind of natural to think that the universe is going to go through this birth, and, um, birth, death, and rebirth. And John Wheeler actually came up with a version where you have the Big Bang and then the Big Crunch. And then he thought that he had his own multiverse theory. <laughs> where at the big crunch, the universe forgets what just happened because it's now the laws of physics get reset. Space and time cease to exist. 
and then they cease to they exist. cease to exist because remember space and time are part of the system in Einstein's theory yeah. right as it comes for the singularity you're creating space and time if you've got a big crunch it goes back to the singularity and as it's going back it's taking space and time back with them okay Boof, and then we go back to this point and then John Wheeler thought that there was a reprocessing that happens um, at that singularity and then poof, it goes again and then there's another one with slightly different laws and the reason why we find ourselves in this one is because we have to because we need laws of a certain kind so it's another anthropic Don't principle exist, yeah. but what's happening is they're not all parallel it's a consecutive one birth death rebirth so new laws new constants when you say consecutive it implies that there is a time that ah, like it's well that's the tricky bit isn't it <laughs> so they, they, it looks like there needs to be a meta law something beyond that's controlling it i don't know what to say about that it's true but he, he didn't really have much of an answer he just said that i don't know it looks like there's evidence that these things have happened happened in the past or oh, that was his theory like if there's a big crunch it makes sense that i mean he was basing it on darwin's theory of evolution that there was like <laughs> some principle of mutation that happened um. So the universe sort of proceeds by natural selection and we're getting fitter and fitter and the ones that have humans in are supposed to be fitter in some sense or some sense like that. I guess. Ultimately. And then this was like the error. The error bit was when it goes back to the big crunch. That's like the errors in replication when you get gene, you know, when the mm. genes get replicated and some little mutation creeps in and it changes <laughs> it. Crazy stuff, eh? Ultimately, matter doesn't really matter. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> We What's your drive? How did you get... Uh, uh, we have a question towards Dean. Yes. Uh, so this is from Rosa. Uh, do you think it's possible for man to internally perceive a transcendent being, which is not simply belief or psychological? Fascinating. Transcendent. Well, I mean, obviously that's what is supposed to happen in mystical experiences. Again, that's the definition of a mystical experience is that you're somehow in communion. You're not viewing it through the senses, through direct. You're not even really experiencing it. Is it possible? I mean, it might be possible. So this, this dual aspect theory of monism that I mentioned before, yes. this dual aspect monism theory, the idea is that there is some underlying reality which is neither mental nor physical. That underlying reality is supposed to correspond to something like this notion of the absolute or the ultimate nature of things. And it's a bit like the, you know, the Atman or something from Upanishads, from Indian philosophy. It's along the same lines as that. It's the undifferentiated thing. And I suppose the idea would be if you can break away enough contents and get enough of this split into mind and matter or subject and object, if you can throw enough of that away, then you're going to get closer and closer and closer and closer to the ultimate nature of things. Right? Because at the moment, the only way we can experience the nature of things is by creating this little split between a subject and an object. And that allows us to sort of some, have some access to the nature of things. But you need to get rid of that. <laughs> in order to understand the nature of this sort of timeless, spaceless, matterless, mindless realm. So it might be possible, but you wouldn't be able to speak about it and you wouldn't be able to experience it as such because to experience you need a knower and a known. 
right? To have knowledge of something, you need this split. So you might be able to do it, but you wouldn't be able to say that you've done it <laughs> or say anything about it because it would yeah. be non-conceptual because any concept involves splitting in some way and differentiating. So it would have to be some weird, bizarre, non-conceptual, non-experienced <laughs> thing where you would just be being. So that would be possible, I suppose, but I don't know what sense to make of it. I don't know, but I like the way you phrased it. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's just the, the way that Eastern philosophies think about things, right? You, just, you end up just being. There's no knower. You get rid of the knower and the notion of the self yeah. and all of these kind of things, and you just are being itself. Yeah, it's a concept of like flow. You just need to yeah. keep doing whatever you're doing. Like you keep flowing and keep being. And <laughs> like it's, it's very, to an extent, it, it might sound nihilistic, but um i don't know i'm not sure it's it's nihilistic i think it's probably well, no. the exact o opposite of of nihilism you're saying that well if nothing is ever saying you're saying we are all one thing yeah all of these splits all of these divisions are fake they're sort of things that we have to use devices that we have to use to know anything to know little aspects of the of oh, nihilistic the, when like, nothing and everything they coincide Oh, nothing in the sense that you're getting rid of all concepts. Sort of like structure, mm. yeah. Mm. Mm. That's good. Good question, though. I, I like thinking about that particular issue. And what's so. your uh, what's the result of all of that thinking? Well, the result is that you would have to eradicate the notion of experience and knowledge. You can't know it. You can't know it, but you can be it, sort of. Thing. <laughs> It's good. I mean, it's amazing. Like some of these old uh, Eastern philosophies, they're fantastic. I've been sort of so another project I'm working on. <laughs> you have lots of projects. You know what? You know this, how this <laughs> I is. I know it feels. <laughs> so another one I'm working on. I just, I just I've just started this one. Another book. It's called Wandering Mazes Lost, and it's a history of how people have thought about the problem of why existence, why there's something rather than nothing, and it's going back right the way to Sumerian creation myths okay and the idea is to focus on what each um culture and each period and each religion and each myth mythological system thought about something about the nature of something and the nature of nothing basically and to see whether they could even formulate the question and how they did if they did at all formulate that kind of question and then how basically new discoveries have changed how we have to formulate it because new discoveries in logic and explanation and philosophy and physics and religion altered how we think of the problem itself, right? Creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing. Well, before that, we couldn't even really properly conceive of something, the, you know, the, cre the creation of the universe itself. So at each stage of, sort of philosophical development, we get these new tools that enable us to ask it in a different way. And then ultimately, the... I mean, the problem with that is that we end up seeing that it's probably unsolvable because we're always going to be limited by the concepts that we're using, which will always change. So there's almost like a pessimistic conclusion that comes from it, right? We've, mm. we've changed over and over our concepts of something and nothing and what it means to explain in the first place, right? Why is there something rather than nothing? That's a question. Question means that it's, it requires an explanation and our concept of explanation has changed even. 
So one answer that we give now, we might be very satisfied with ourselves and think, yes, I solved the problem of why there's something rather than nothing. Here it is. And then a thousand years down the line, they're saying, well, no, your somethings are not our somethings and your nothings <laughs> are not our nothings. And we don't explain things like that anymore. So it's like, we're, it's just a, this is why it's called Wandering Mazes Lost. This is a quote from William James about this problem. Like, we're never going to get out of this maze, I don't think. <laughs> it's an unsolvable problem. I love problem. it. I love yeah. it. <clears throat> What's yeah. your drive? What, why? Why? Like, most people are not. Um, it's scary to think of unintelligible things to most people. Like, fear of unknown and all of that. Why? Okay. How does it feel to uh, start a research in a field that you know, good chances are you won't get a definite answer because, because things keep changing. Yeah. Uh, I think it's just curiosity. I actually don't care if I get a definite answer. I like reading through all of this stuff and learning just weird things and <laughs> just learning as much as possible. I can't believe anybody would want to do anything other than learn as much as possible about as Crave much as possible. Crave for learning and knowledge. Yeah. Uh, what, what's the origin of that? I've absolutely... No idea. I, I know a bit of it came from some experiences at music college, which <laughs> you keep you keep mentioning it. I'm really curious now. <laughs> what happened? What happened back then? Was I? I'm trying to think. But I mean, there were hints of stuff before that. There were hints of sort of weird drives and stuff before that. But at music college, I was trying to be a concert pianist. Music is mathematics anyway, uh, and deeper i think it's the most <laughs> profound thing in the universe music actually but oh. um that would open so another <laughs> <laughs> anyway so obviously i did s some lsd oh you you wrote <laughs> you wrote a book about uh music and did you um i've given talks on on it so i gave it this um there's a really nice series that uh, i forget who's organizing it now it's at the angel place city recital hall called sound this sounds like science and then people talk about the mathematics and the science of music. And I gave a thing there, which was a half recital, half lecture thing. But apart from that, I've, not, I've written papers on it. I've not written a book. Okay, oh, maybe it was a few papers. Yeah, I obviously will papers. eventually write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to know about the LSD story, but I really need to use the loo, so I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> okay, I'm going to pour another glass of wine. <laughs> yeah. So when was this um, music school? Like, how old were you in? Where, where was it in the world? It was in uh, London. Uh, I was 17. Oh, this is not a good age to be <laughs> cast adrift into London <laughs> with musicians. <laughs> it was bound to result in some terrible tragedy. <laughs> Wild times. <laughs> My God, I did so little actual work. There. It was <laughs> shocking, actually. But, um, you know, you have learned a few things from there. I did. Well, it sort of formed the basis of my entire career, to be honest. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm getting back to the piano stuff again now. Oh, that's great. And sort of second half of life. It just took a while. I had to just do a quick detour over some other things. <laughs> Do you have any other events planned for, for the future, like music and... 
Just, right. just little recitals. Okay. I think I'm going to start. I mean, the COVID thing killed everything. I get, I did, I did that recital just before COVID hit, and I, and I had visions of like, wow, this is great. I'm going to start doing these all over the place, and then it just completely squished it. But anyway, it's all right. It will eventually, once we develop a vaccine that doesn't <laughs> cause blood clots. Seems like a little longer way, right? <laughs> it's like I, I wondered about the Pfizer. I, I, my thought was, surely every one of these vaccines is going to cause blood clots because there's a similar mechanism behind them, and now they're all causing blood clots. So we're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> what did I miss? Talking about the blood clot. I just solved the, the problem yeah. of why there's something rather than nothing, but it's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I was actually about to ask you uh, when we were talking about like how reality might be just perception. I was about to ask you about drugs. Mm. Uh, so yeah, LSD. Well, that very much helps with the, the viewpoint that an awful lot of what we think is reality is a contribution of the brain, of the mind. Yeah. Um, that was my, that was one of the key things I got from, from those experiences. But the main thing was, so it was a, an extremely large dose that, that altered my career path. So I was, I was there, I was quite happily doing my thing. <laughs> and I had a very, very large dose of LSD. And after I'd stopped laughing manically in the garden for many hours, apparently, people were very scared. <laughs> I came in and somebody put The Graduate, you know, with Dustin Hoffman, that movie. Yeah. Mrs. Robinson and all that. Somebody put yeah. that on TV and it was one of those old TVs that you might not be, you might be too young to know these TVs. They had the big pixels. You could see the three pixels, the RGB things. No. These cathode ray TVs. It was an old fashioned TV. Okay. And I was watching it and it looked very nice and everything. <laughs> and then I noticed the pixelation of the screen. I was like, wow, that's really cool that's really made from these tiny pieces this is like discrete but it looks continuous and then my immediate thought for whatever reason was i bet space is probably like that and then what if time is like that and then i was sort of thinking wow like it could be like it could be a discrete structure at a smaller scale and then it's continuous at a larger scale and then my th and then i was i was off basically and i was just thinking about space and time for well that's it now basically for forever it was from that one little thing on the TV. It just kind of clicked something in my head. I was like, bloody hell, that's incredible. Space and time. And then I started thinking about space itself, just how weird it was. Space. It's like the equivalent of a goldfish finding its water weird sort of thing. It's just like, what is this stuff? What the hell is it? It's, like, it's all around me, but what is it? And then that was it. And then I went to the bookshop, to a bookshop the next day, bought a book by Bertrand Russell, which was a really good choice in retrospect, Problems of Philosophy, and I read that, and I was just like, it's just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. It's just like, what is this thing? <laughs> I didn't even know what philosophy was or anything. I was just like, this is unbelievable. And yeah, it was excitement for years, actually. I'm getting excited. I can <laughs> thinking see about it. It's it fascinating. So good. And then I changed my degree and went and did philosophy the next year. Beautiful. Yeah. There's a uh, theory, I can't remember the name, but basically it says that like instead of like um, going wide, it goes in depth into micro dimensions. I don't know if I'm explaining it right, but basically 
there is no end and everything is cyclical in how everything is like okay the the way to to try to explain it is the universe is made of um to to an extent of like um galaxies and mm. then you have planets and then you have orbits and that kind of like resembles the structure of atoms and molecules in mm. a way and the smaller you go like the, we have no way to measure what is smaller Ground zero yeah but also of what is bigger like because we don't we we, we cannot see the whole universe mm. and we don't know if there is anything i mean beyond or like anyway we had no comprehension of like what's mm -hmm. yeah. if there is anything outside of the universe um as much as like we cannot go i think quark is oh yeah so we're limited by a horizon of visibility yes. on a large scale to do with the speed of light and we're limited by a resolution on the small scale limited by the energies that it takes to probe ever deeper yes yeah and the theory was saying that basically it's not like smaller and bigger it's just like like a ring i don't know what that means um <laughs> why would that what would that be unless I don't know, you're not talking about roger penrose's cycles no, of, no 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 yeah. no no what's that this is yet another cyclic theory of the universe how does that work roger penrose um is i think probably the greatest living genius. He's, um, he did some work with Hawking. He was in that terrible Stephen Hawking movie and somebody oh, no, playing no, no. Roger Penrose did it okay. in a very bad way. A theory anyway. of everything? Yeah, that one, yeah. Um, but he's got this theory. Oh, by the way, do you know those Escher pictures where you follow the waterfall around and it never ends? Yeah. He came, he came up with the design for that, the oh. impossible object with his dad, Lionel Penrose, who was a eugenicist. <laughs> anyway. And his brother is also a genius physicist. And another brother is a genius chess player, grandmaster. Do you play chess? Oh, I hate it. <laughs> anyway, what was I saying? Okay, so Roger Penrose's cycles of, uh, of time. So the idea is that... So at the end of the, the universe... Remember we were talking about this thing where at the end everything loses its energy and it goes into this sort of equilibrium state. Yes. So Penrose says, look, everything becomes photons essentially at the end. It's just yeah. radiation. And the thing about radiation, about photons, is that they're massless, right? That means that they have infinite range, basically. Mass is connected to the range that the force can act. And light obeys this inverse square law, right? The famous inverse square law. So it's massless. The thing about massless things is that they have no scale, right? The reason why we need particle accelerators that are bigger and bigger and take more and more energy is that in order to probe small scales you need more and more mass, basically. So mass is connected to scale in physics. Okay. Just, you don't necessarily need to understand it. It's to do with something called conformal invariance. I'm and it's trying to technical. follow, yeah. So his, Penrose's theory is called conformal cyclic cosmology. The conformal means that there's no scale. You can rescale and everything stays the same. The physics stays the same. You can't measure any difference in any of the measurements you make. And that's what light is like. Photons are like that. You could make... Everything ma if everything was made of light, we could double some things and they, we wouldn't be able to tell. We wouldn't be able to detect the difference yeah. as we rescaled it because there's no mass. You need mass. So what happens is at the end of the universe, 
everything's made of photons, so you can effectively, even though it's kind of <laughs> blasted out far and wide, you can perform a rescaling where everything is really very small, and it makes no difference to the physics. It so you end sounds up, like... So you end up with a singularity again, and that becomes the birth of a new universe. That's the idea. Most people think it's... Most physicists think it's a bit <coughs> crazy, actually. But he claims to have found evidence in these sort of concentric rings and certain data from these... Um, uh, it does sound like whatever I was trying to explain to an extent. Yeah. Like ish, where you're rescaling the big to the small yes. kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's not... It's just... It's very, really bizarre, though. I don't understand. Like, I really like Penrose, but that particular <laughs> theory... Like, no... That's not good, actually. Yeah. It's not good. I think it, it's scary because it defies many other things. Well, um, it defies all, all reason. <laughs> I mean, there's no reason why things are made of photons in the end, for a start. And, like, what is the nature of, like, what the universe is doing, some weird... It doesn't make any sense. It's, but nothing does. It's really strange. I mean, good on him for coming up with this big, you know, crazy cosmological theory in his 90s and everything. And he's done plenty of amazing things anyway, before that. Anyway. You're still my hero. Your, your, your drive ultimately was, like, your original motivation was LSD. No, well, <laughs> I say that, but, uh, you know, there was, uh, like, I w I've always worked for, ah, okay. All right. No, this, re this relates to the diseases of time thing. Okay. So this, is, this was the, the start of it, actually. Um, how old was I? I must have been about 12 or something. And I had basically this the future self idea. So I was sort of doing something. I thought if I, I was about to do something shit or something lazy. And I thought, well, look, if I do this now, my future self is going to be really happy with me. <laughs> it was like a really simple thought. And then something just clicked in there. And I was like, fucking hell, actually, that's always going to be true. I can always make things easier. Like this was, that thing the other day was shit because my past self didn't do what it should have done. And now here I am feeling shit. So I'm not going to allow these things to happen again, basically. I'm not going to allow that to happen ever again. And it got utterly pathological when I was at university doing that weird no sleep thing. <laughs> like, I, like, it was extreme. I think I was probably having some kind of mental breakdown or something because I used to put things on the wall, like notes saying, you have work more now. <laughs> work more now. So I would see it everywhere I looked. I was like, okay. I should work more now <laughs> because it's going to be better if I do, <laughs> I suppose. Okay. And then, it, but it had like the opposite effect because my like poor present self was just getting screwed over at left, right and center. Well, my future self was kind of sunning himself on a beach somewhere in Tahiti. <laughs> my present self was just like, oh, for fuck's sake. So it's like I had the opposite. To I what think you need to happens. get for both. Exactly. That's what that book is about that I mentioned. The Life's Too Short for Long Books. It's about balancing this pair of psychological attitudes, which is future orientation and, and present orientation. It's all about this little, this little balancing act. Okay, I want to finish with a question that... Okay, I want to finish with two questions. One is goals, about goals. Like, what do you, would you like to achieve in the medium-long term to, to feel like satisfied with your work, accomplished. And the byproduct of that question is the last question. Is there anything 
that actually matters <laughs> at all in general mm, okay uh the gold thing well the gold thing is this business of understanding well like i don't think it's going to be i don't think it's under, it's solvable the problem of existence but i want to genuinely make sense of why it's unsolvable because i don't think there's any it actually relates to your second question actually <laughs> if we don't know why the universe is here then we don't know if anything matters basically um, and i think it's safe to assume that like it doesn't unless you can prove it well i what i would like to find <laughs> it would be really nice if i was proven wrong and and solved the problem of existence <laughs> and found some sort of unseen order organizing everything that made everything make sense and then would that be good look would that give you peace of mind oh, knowing yeah. that there was an order oh yeah unseen order this was william james's thing why why because then you know that well, you understand why things are here you understand why you are here and and why is that important um because otherwise the your projects don't make any sense whatsoever and how how why is that bad i think it's bad see yeah but why i mean why sense why to make sense of things is important to us like what uh i think we're meaning we're creatures of meaning basically it's what we are are it's, we it's, we're meaning engines yeah we, look you're like you accept the view that a lot of this a lot of what you see <coughs> is a projection that's your brain trying to make sense of the world all the time every every tiny piece of your perception is your brain desperately trying to make sense of what's coming in through your receptors basically and producing some best mm, guess you are a meaning creation that's machine not uh, uh, the way i would say is that our body is made of sensors and the job or the function of those like as much as like a gopro or like a camera like the, their job is to like they don't interpret though. they they have no conception of interpretation yeah no no it could just be a random patch of whatever yes. on there you make sense of things well everything we try but everything in your visual don't. field comes with some overlay of meaning everything's been interpreted everything in your visual field that's coming in is being interpreted but that could be the same like if, if you give enough like ai to an well that's machine. good in that case then it's a meaning creation machine if you can give enough ai that it can <laughs> interpret and have a perspective on the world and separate itself out and be self-aware to know what it's doing then fair enough then it would but we also don't know appreciate what we're my doing. work <laughs> we, <laughs> we have no idea what we're doing that's the point we don't know we have no idea what we're doing so we're the same as a gopro well <laughs> unless you try and solve it and figure it out okay so as we speak there is no difference between me and that camera there <laughs> <laughs> you said that <laughs> I, i say that because i think that uh energy and matter are the same thing mm, and they are. um they are yeah okay and everything is made of matter well that's okay this is your view you can say your view my, that's not my view but yeah. okay no, no please contradict me like uh, i want to understand i oh, don't no, like my view is that everything is not made of matter okay everything is made of something that you don't know what it is because it's hard to to access it 
because the only way we can access it is by using concepts like matter and mind. Oh, yeah, the the mm. thing that we started with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I want to understand. Okay. Well, yeah, it's nice. It's, it's a modest goal to understand, you know, the meaning of existence. You got to have some small. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! You're giving me perspective. Like I might start thinking that I actually might not be the same as the camera. That over would there. be good. I would, you know. Mm. I thought I was, <laughs> my whole life. <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks. I think we can uh, finish on that. <laughs> That's fascinating. Is everything the same? Everything is the same, like everything.